This evening, uh, I want to uh, I want to invite you to relax into the topic of the person of Jesus and his historical context. You'll hear lots that's very familiar to you, uh, but it's very much like uh, if you remember in your earlier educations, you know, when all at once kind of the light went on for you and what you learned in English you saw in history and you heard in philosophy and you started to see some contrails coming together. Uh, I, I look tonight at, at our topic as very much like that. You'll hear so much that's familiar, but you might hear a nuance. You might hear a phrase or you might hear a way of thinking and looking at the person of Jesus that can deepen your own relationship by your understanding of the historical Christ, your relationship with the risen Christ. I want to begin with uh, uh, something that took place in the parish where I am in Oregon many years ago uh, in the RCIA, which is such a a grace to our church. We had a woman uh, who was coming into the church with no background whatsoever in religion or in Christianity. I mean, none. That's not a rare phenomenon in the West. Uh, the further east you go, the more rare that would be. But that was, that's not a rare phenomenon. But she really had no exposure whatsoever. And I had given a couple of classes, a couple of evening presentations on the psychology of Jesus. And at the end of the second night, there had been lots of really good questions and interesting reflections that people offered. And she raised her hand and she said, I have a question. And I was waiting for her question and uh, my experience in 43 years as a priest is that by and large it has usually something to do with did the miracles really happen or did Jesus know who he was or something along those lines. But she didn't. She asked me a question that has continued to be the most precious question I've ever been asked. I treasure it to this night and it's very much consistent with why this topic takes place tonight. She said to me, Father, you've, been a, you've known Jesus your whole life. She said, what do you want to know about Jesus? What a question. What do you want to know about Jesus? And the answer that I gave her, without a chance to reflect on it, is the same answer I would give her tonight. I said to her, I want to know what was in the heart of Jesus. I want to know what he prayed about, what kept him up, I want to know what his days were like. I want to know what was in the heart of Jesus. And although, like you, I do windows and a lot of other things, that really is the question I want my whole life to be devoted to. What was in the heart of Jesus? So it's from that perspective tonight that I want to open up some background. Tonight we talk about the person of Jesus specifically and a little about what he taught, and tomorrow night to open up the reign of God that he devoted his whole life to. Can't understand Jesus unless we have a sense of Galilee, where he was from. Galilee, a very distinct area in which Jews lived, but also many Gentiles as well. It was 
very different from Judea and Jerusalem and the Jews of Jerusalem. Uh, Galilee was, was an island, really. To the east were the Greek cities of the Decapolis, the ten cities. To the west, along the sea, Tyre and Sidon, was the country of the Gentiles. To the south were the hated Samaritans. So the Galileans were uh, a gathering of Jews and others as well, uh, distinctly different from their Jewish sisters and brothers. They even spoke differently. They spoke an accented Aramaic. And it was different from the Aramaic that the Jews of Jerusalem spoke. If any of you have ever studied German, I have two years of uh, German in my background, and I can find uh, mashed potatoes in church. That's about all I remember. But uh, I had something in common with the Galileans speaking Aramaic. They had a hard time with guttural uh, pronunciations. And because of that, uh, folks from the Galilee were mocked for their accent and for their speech. Do you remember, and that's one of the reasons why, for example, when they said about Jesus, well, pff, who is he? He was in Galilee. And uh, when Philip heard about Jesus from Simon and Andrew, he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Uh, Peter, when he was warming himself by the fire after Jesus' arrest, you remember, the servant girl says to him, are you not a Galilean? Why, your speech even betrays you. So there was that, there was that reality, and that's the reality that Jesus came with. So he would have had that kind of like a sense of second-class citizenship when he would go to Jerusalem or Judea. He was judged regularly and would be judged simply on his accent. But also he used the Aramaic, and his, in, the, in the crowds that listened to Jesus, would, he, would, he used humor with his Aramaic. Uh, let me give you an example of that. Uh, do you remember that, that section of the scripture in which he confronts the scribes, the Pharisees, for their, um, for their hypocrisy, for looking at the nickel dime and missing the whole picture? Jesus says to them, blind guides, you strain out a gnat. In the Aramaic, the word is glama. And you swallow a camel. The Aramaic word for that is gamla. So, galma, gamla. Jesus was playing with the language, and it would have been, it would have been received that way, you know, like a, a funny way to say it. And not only that, for that audience, it would have been uproariously funny for Jesus to say that to the Pharisees and the scribes, telling them they'd swallow a camel, because the camel was an impure animal. And to say that to these experts in the law would have been a double uh, irony in the way that he spoke to them. But that was the language of Jesus. He would have known some Greek 
because the Galilee was a great uh, uh, trafficking and trade going from the sea to the Ten Cities area and to the two large cities in the Galilee, more about which in a moment. So Jesus would have known some Greek. He did not know Latin. I've always been struck by folks that have asked me, you know, why don't we have a Latin Mass, Father? And I'm old enough to have had my textbooks in Latin. Uh, and they say, I said, why do you want a Latin Mass? Well, we want to pray in the language. want to hear the Mass, you know, the, in the language that Jesus would have prayed. I said, I don't know Aramaic. <laughs> have friends who do, but I don't. Jesus didn't know any Latin. In fact, uh, none of his compatriots would have known Latin either. The only ones who would have known Latin in the Galilee or in Judea would have been the, uh, the military, the Roman occupiers, and the government. You know, the, uh, the, the, like Pontius Pilate, for example, the representatives of the Roman Empire. But the people did not know or speak Latin. Jesus grew up in Nazareth. Um, Nazareth was an almost unknown place. It was certainly insignificant. There were only two to four hundred people who lived there, for one thing. There was hardly anybody there. Uh, as well, the people in Nazareth would have lived either in the caves in the bluff that surrounds Nazareth, or in very poor uh, adobe-like structures with dirt floors. Uh, they would have had a, uh, a common patio, a common grinding wheel for their grain, and a common cooking pit uh, with the neighbors. They would have lived very closely together and large uh, extended family. One of the reasons it's important to get a, get a sense of Jesus from the Galilee, from the rural uh, Galilee, is that his common peasant life, and make no mistake, Jesus was a peasant, his common peasant life was really that which provided him the images by which he taught. Jesus was called a rabbi, but he was not formally trained as a rabbi. Those who were formally trained as rabbis uh, expounded on the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers, and the commentary on the Torah. That's the job of the rabbi then and now. That's what they do is open up the Torah to understand. That's what I let, let me repeat or summarize what you said and, and maybe, maybe we can wait till the end because uh, uh, the others might have comments or questions too, and I think it'll, it'll make a little more continuity. That's okay. You know, the comment was uh, how amazing uh, the, the, the origins of Jesus in his peasant, uh, uneducated life, and yet he's the Son of God who opened up uh, the way to God, who is the way to God, not just in his teaching but in his person. It's an extraordinary gift and miracle. But those images from his peasant life, listen to them. They're very familiar to you. You recognize them in an instant. They provided him uh, how he would teach, uh, lighting a candle, 
to dispel the darkness. Do you remember that? He said no one lights a candle and then puts a... In that very, very dark place where they lived when the sun went down, that lighting a candle to dispel the darkness. He talked about... Uh, he, would have, he would have observed women in, the, in, the, in Nazareth sewing on a patch on a piece of clothing and would have learned from the women that you don't sew a new patch on old clothing that will tear the clothing. He would have seen that. Uh, he would have seen a woman sweeping diligently the dirt floor looking for a coin. It would be the coin of Herod Antipas. Uh, we talked about at the homily yesterday, if you were here, that you know, desperately, because they're very poor people, if you lose a coin, that's significant. Uh, Jesus would have seen that. He would have seen children asking their parents for an egg and most likely did that himself in asking his own parents for an egg as a child. Uh, he would have observed how the neighbors helped each other when someone would come after the night has closed in, that, that knocking for help. He would have seen his neighbors responding to that. He, would, he, he did not have a formal education. More about that in a minute. He spoke from his life experience, from his rural experiences. He spoke about birds of the air. He talked about the red flowers by the Sea of Galilee called the lilies of the field. He talked about the branches on trees. He talked about mustard seeds. He talked about the, the leaves on the fig tree coming in in the spring in order to read the signs of the time. He saw all of that. He observed all of that as his God taking good care of God's beloved creatures. Jesus also lived in an extended family. No question about that. Uh, so any of these the pious paintings that you've seen of you know, some small ranch house with open windows uh, with Mary, Joseph, and uh, uh, Jesus all together in their home is complete and total nonsense. Uh, just as it is nonsense picturing a, a carpentry shop where Jesus learned the art of carpentry from Joseph. Now, we'll say a little bit more about that later. It didn't happen. can't have happened. Uh, he lived in an extended family, large extended family. In fact, the gospel tells us he had four brothers. Gives us their names. James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. And he also had sisters who were unnamed, not, not uncommon for women in that culture. Um, his, his relatives would most likely, uh, predictably, have been married with children. So we're talking about a large group of people living together. And what is so significant about that in terms of Jesus' own life was that he walked away from his family. He walked away from Nazareth. Whatever it was that prompted him to go to the desert in Perea where John was, he walked away from his family, and that would have been a very big deal because the family is your protection unit. The family is that... that Kahal, that assembly of people by whom you are identified, with whom you are identified, and with whom you share an obligation to care for the family. Jesus walked away from that. 
And he would come to challenge. You know, you can't soft pedal this because this is really uh, at the heart of what Jesus taught. Whatever else you can say about his blood family, it was not as important to him. He told what was important to him. When his own family, his mother and brothers, came looking for him because he was considered to be out of his mind. He was considered to be mentally ill. It's in Mark 3, if you want to look it up. And Jesus is uh, in the Capernaum area. He's teaching in a household, and they say to him, your mother and brothers are here for you. And Jesus' response was, who are my mother, brothers, and sisters? These are mother, brother, and sister to me who hear the word of God and act on it. Jesus walked away, and when he did go back to Nazareth, the gospel tells us very clearly his own did not receive him. His family did not receive him. And it even says he could work no miracle there because of their unbelief. It's very important to understand this, how risky that was for Jesus in his culture. He criticized the family Really, it came to criticize family practice in his time in two main ways. The first was the patriarchal authority in the family. It was really pretty incredible. Um, The father of the family arranged marriages for members of the family. The father of the family assigned work for each member of the family. And the father defined the rights of the members of the family. Very powerful, very powerful position. Boy, when you realize that and you remember that parable Jesus told about the man who had two sons and the younger said to the father, give me my share of the inheritance. That was so shocking It would have been a huge embarrassment for the whole community to hear such a thing because this younger son was willing publicly to treat his father as a dead man. Divide, give me my share of the inheritance. It was utterly shocking. They would have all collectively drawn in their breath to hear such a story and be captivated by this unthinkable thing that Jesus said. The only thing more unthinkable was the next line in Jesus' story. And he divided his property between them. Never happened. Unbelievable. And how powerful that story still is today. Even in our own culture, you know, without all that that, uh, specifically identified patriarchy. It continues to be shocking. I can tell you that after four decades as a priest. When you proclaim that gospel... And you look out, ask any of the deacons here too. You proclaim that gospel of the prodigal son, you'll see kids listening to that story. It's like, whoa, really? It still has the power, cross-culturally, cross-genders to grab us. Jesus criticized that structure of the family. He also criticized the situation of women by the way he did stuff. A lot more about that tomorrow evening. For example, uh, women were not permitted to uh, sit at table with guests in that culture. That's also uh, still present in lots of cultures. I remember a number of years ago, I had dinner with a 
psychologist colleague of mine. We were graduate students together. He was from Bangalore, India. Kahulagala Narajan was his name. <laughs> is his name, God bless him. He invited me over to his home for dinner. And his wife, who was a physician, she was a gerontologist, prepared this lovely Indian meal. And there's just Rajan and me. And her name was Moni. I said, Moni, come. No. She made the meal, and she stood away from the table, stood behind us to wait on us. This is like day before yesterday. But that was exactly what happened in the culture of Jesus as well. Jesus didn't function like that. The women who were part of his band didn't function like that either. Likewise, all women belonged to someone. I mean as property. They belonged to someone, either to their father or their husband or their older brother. And the, the women who did not belong to someone were among the most despised people in the culture. And that would include widows who were shunned. Not all widows were shunned. But the widows who were shunned had no one to protect them. Prostitutes who were by and large, the anthropologists are beginning to discover, pimped out by the tax collectors. They were despised because they had no one who looked after them. That's not the way it was in the company of disciples with Jesus. More about that again tomorrow night. Women were easily divorced in that culture. And in some parts of the Middle East, they still are. All a man had to do was to say three times, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. Done. Done. No alimony. No shared property provinces. Done. It's one of the reasons why Jesus uh, challenged the Pharisees about that business about divorce. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. The reason why Jesus was so firm on that had to do with this reverence of women. Also, women were valued, by and large, for their fecundity and for their work. That's what they were valued for. It's extraordinary that we know the names of so many women. And by the way, you know where we hear most of them? From Luke. From Luke's Gospel, from Luke's Acts of the Apostles. And why would that be? Because Luke was a Hellenist. And the situation of women in the Grecian settlements was distinctly different from the position of women in Judaism. Again, Jesus valued women in a whole brand new way. Uh, again, as a preview for tomorrow night, as disciples. Religious life in Galilee, what did Jesus grow up with? What was that like? It was not like religious life in Jerusalem. Uh, in Jerusalem, the over overweening power of the temple was there. It was the center of the Jewish faith at that time. And the high priests and the Pharisees and the scribes had enormous influence, and enormous influence for the good. 
You know, the great teachers of the law never made it to Nazareth. Great teachers of the law probably didn't even go to Galilee. In the Galilee where Jesus grew up, their faith was very elemental. And they took care of it themselves in their synagogue. For example, every day uh, connected with Judaism. They, They were Jews, and they certainly were linked spiritually with Jerusalem. But every day, twice a day, the men would recite the Shema. Uh, Women were not obligated to do that. The Shema is the most precious teaching in all of Judaism. And Jesus said it's the greatest of all the commandments. It's Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 9. Hear, O Israel, I am the Lord, and the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, all your being, all your strength. To this day, observant Jews recite the Shema, sunrise, sunset. They did that uh, certainly in the time of our Jesus. They certainly knew, even though they weren't sophisticated in their religion, they knew that they belonged to a covenanted people, and they knew they had a special relationship with their God. They were also proud of the Torah, of the law of God. The best description I've heard of that is, it's as if God whispered in your ear the secret of living with God, the Mosaic prescriptives, what the Torah, what the law of Moses calls for. Um, It was woven into everything that they did. Some of you may have uh, made this resolution at some time in your life to read the whole of the Bible, and uh, lots of folks start out very diligently with that, and Certainly Genesis is interesting. It'll keep you up. It's uh, at least PG-13. Deuteronomy has lots of interesting stuff going on in it. Exodus, my gosh, you know. Leon Uris made a fortune on it. Uh, Very interesting stuff. Where the good resolutions usually break down are with Deuteronomy and Leviticus, especially in Leviticus. Because Leviticus lays out how you scrub pots and pans. It lays out how often you should change your bed linens. It lays out how many steps you can take on the Sabbath day. And while we, with our Christianized Western ears, read that and it's just like, whoa, you know, it's like a cure for insomnia. Uh, for the Jewish people, it was a symbol of how pervasively they wanted God's, uh, God's way and their response to God to just permeate their lives, that every single aspect of their lives would be touched by fidelity to the Torah, to the, to the relationship that God asked of them. There were three things really that set, up, set apart the Jews in the Roman Empire, which as you know was as extensive as the known world then. And they're still digging up stuff in England that came from the Romans. But there were three things that distinguished the Jews from everybody else in the Roman Empire. Uh, The first was circumcision of men, that in their flesh they carried a sign of the covenant. Uh, Secondly, the Sabbath law. Thirdly, abstaining from impure foods. Uh, 
none of those three were characteristic of any of the other uh, cultures in the Fertile Crescent. The Jews would look in Galilee, would look toward Jerusalem when they prayed. I mean, they would orient to Jerusalem. Uh, there's, there's conflict among scripture scholars about how frequently they may have gone uh, to Jerusalem. Uh, Elizabeth Johnson, for example, uh, in, in underscoring the poverty of people in the Galilee, would say not only could they not afford to miss a day's work if they had it, but to afford the journey would have been beyond the means of most of the people. Um, on the other hand, some, Pagola among them, contends that that was as close that they got to holy holidays uh, to make their way to Jerusalem for the festivals. Uh, the business about the Sabbath is interesting to me uh, for the Jewish people. And again, picture the poverty here and their uh, monotonous hard work. Uh, the Sabbath rest was distinctly Jewish. In fact, there's some extra-biblical uh, suggestion, some literature outside of the Bible, that suggests that uh, pagan cultures encountering the Jews were intrigued by it and also a bit jealous of it because they didn't enjoy that. They worked seven days a week trying to scratch out a living. But the Jews, no matter how poor they were, they didn't work on the Sabbath. That was a day that their creator had given them as a day of rest, and they treasured that gift that God had given them. And they got it. They got it, how holy and wholesome that gift of Sabbath rest really was. You remember the encounter Jesus had with the, the, uh, <clears throat> the experts in the law from Jerusalem who took serious issue with Jesus because his disciples were plucking grain, walking through a field, and uh, shucking the grain and, and eating it. Well, technically, they were farming, and that was prohib prohibited on the Sabbath. And Jesus, you can hear his impatience in his response to them. It's like, oh, for God's sake, grow up, you know. He says to them, yeah, the Sabbath was made for human beings, not human beings for the Sabbath. You know, they got it. Those uh, poor peasants in the rural uh, part of Galilee really grasped that beauty and that gift of Sabbath rest. You know, you know where else that's captured in our own uh, current uh, meaning? last 50 years, life is in the, uh, the great play Fiddler on the Roof. That Fiddler on the Roof really captures Sabbath rest, and it captures that preciousness of that, that these hard-working folks, including the hard-working tailor there, uh, are so grateful for their Sabbath rest. Their, their life was very monotonous because they were uh, so pushed to the edge of survival, that the only thing that gave them a break was their festivals and especially their weddings, which would, which would last a couple of days. Uh, very, 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 very down-to-earth way of, way of living. Jesus grew up in that. He grew up in that environment. And there's a really strong suggestion here, and I'll tell you where it comes from, that he learned how to pray from his parents. And the reason we say that is this, that the names of his parents, Mary and Joseph, and of his siblings that we know of, 
are all names that come from deep in Israelite history. And the best anthropological data tells us that means that this was a pious Jewish family in which prayer and observances would have taken place. Jesus had no formal schooling. Number one, there were no books. Secondly, um, picture this. In the Roman Empire, the whole Roman Empire, only 10% of the people were literate. You know, as a, as a seminarian and a Latin student for six years, you know, I, you know, I just I feel like I sleptwalked through my education. You know, I'd like to really have it again now. You know, I'd, I'd pay attention this time. But, you know, I'd, we were translating uh, Roman historians, Seneca and Tacitus and Pliny the Elder and Pliny the Younger and, you know, going through Virgil, you know, translating all these great Roman writers. And in my uh, undisturbed ignorance, my assumption was, well, everybody else at that time was enjoying all of this stuff too. Only 10% were literate. It would have been all oral stuff that they heard. In Palestine, where Jesus was from, 3% were literate. Only 3%, which is even more astounding when you look at the rabbinic ministry of Jesus and how powerfully effective he was and continues to be with us. However, you certainly can from the gospel narratives and also a bit from uh, Flavius Josephus, who was a Jew who defected to the Roman uh, army and became an officer, an important officer in the Roman army, and wrote history, wrote the history of uh, Judaism from a Roman bias and a Roman perspective. But he even makes the point about the intelligence of Jesus, you know, like that, that the crowds were captivated by his insightfulness. Jesus was very smart, and Jesus was also very observant, and he listened. That's how he knew the scripture so well from the synagogue. Uh, and you remember Matthew tells us, even without a formal education, without being a rabbi who took disciples to teach them Torah, that Jesus spoke with authority. Uh, the crowds noticed that. Jesus spoke with authority, not like the scribes. Like when he spoke, it's like folks listened up because what he had to say came from his heart and from the gift of his Abba, what he opened up for them. What about the rest of Jesus' life there? We know that he was a tecton in the Greek, tecton. Uh, it gets translated, why I don't know, as carpenter. It, uh, it meant more a worker with um, stone. It, it really meant like a utility worker, uh, a, a, a day laborer. You know, the way that the pecking order went in this poor peasant society was the ones on top were the folks, the farmers, who still owned some of their land. The next tier were the day laborers. And many of them, some of those who were farmers, had lost their land and were desperate every day to get work. 
We see that in our own culture too, don't we? Uh, we see that with our folks who come from Mexico, uh, and we see that in other arenas as well. Um, that, that story that Jesus told about the, the landowner who went out to hire workers for his vineyard, you remember? Uh, that's such a powerful story. Uh, what, what would have come across there was when the landowner came out, because he never mentions his harvest. He never mentions actually what's going on in the vineyard. <clears throat> what he seems to be about is making sure everybody has work even the ones he hired at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, that, you know, that that was the desperate thing that pushed them every day was to get work. Jesus was among that class. Below that class would have been beggars, and the lowest were slaves. So we're not talking about a white Thai dinner here. These are very poor people uh, trying to eke out a, a living. At some point in there... We talked about it on Sunday. Jesus left all that, prompted to go to the desert in Perea. When he left the desert after John's uh, having been arrested, Jesus went back to the Galilee, but he went to Capernaum. How Jesus, how Jesus lived before he went to the desert, we don't have anything on in the, in the Gospels. It's silent. But we have a pretty good sense of where he and his father Joseph would have spent their time, by the way. Um, Remember, Herod Antipas was in charge of the Galilee and Perean Desert. Herod Antipas rebuilt a city called Sepphoris. Sepphoris had been raised and leveled by the Romans when Jesus was six years old. It had been the capital of Galilee. That's where Herod Antipas had had his uh, center. Herod Antipas rebuilt Sepphoris into a pretty splendid city. He also built the second largest city in the Galilee called Tiberias, named, of course, after the Roman emperor whose uh, favor he was currying. Sepphoris was an hour's walk out of Nazareth. It's interesting that the Gospels do not mention Sepphoris or Tiberias. The public ministry we have of Jesus, to the best of our knowledge, never went to Sepphoris and never went to Tiberias. Your best guess is he was avoiding Herod Antipas. Remember at one point Herod Antipas was trying to connect with Jesus And Jesus sent his messengers to say, tell that fox, you know, that that slippery devil, Herod Antipas, that the Son of Man has other places to be. But it's quite likely, we don't know this for certain, but it's quite likely that both Jesus and Joseph would have been commandeered to help rebuild Sepphoris. They needed workers' tectones. They needed workers who did the kind of work that Jesus and Joseph did in order to rebuild that city. It's interesting to picture it. It's interesting to think about it and how, how Jesus would have uh, processed uh, being treated like a slave to build this palatial city for Herod Antipas.
Anyway, it's just something to think about. Again, that's, that's conjecture. It's, there's common sense appeal to it. There's some logic that supports it. We don't have fact that he did that. When he came to Capernaum from the desert, he came to a much bigger city than Nazareth, but still, you know, it's, it's a neighborhood here. I mean, there were between 600 and 1,500 in Capernaum compared to the 200 to 400 in Nazareth. It's by the sea, and it was centrally located for his ministry. By the way, it was 16 kilometers from both Sepphoris and Tiberias. Um, he lived in the house of Simon and Ann, uh, Andrew and their extended family. We know for sure that he spent time in those rural areas. He spent time among the most despised in the culture, the vagabonds, uh, the beggars, the marginalized ones. Luke refers to them as the tapianosi, the lowest of the low. That's the way he refers to Mary in the Magnificat, that she was from the lowliest. But there were two other words, uh, and I I find these of of interest, you may or may not, but you're sitting down, so it's not too painful. Uh, There are two words in the Greek that are used for the poor. One of them is penes, P-E-N-E-S in our uh, alphabet. And that meant, for us, it meant the working poor. It meant those who were um, living by their very, very hard work day to day. Can't get ahead. The working poor. But there's a second word, toyos. P-T-O-J-O-S in in our uh, vocabulary. And that meant those who were dispossessed of everything, who had nothing to live by. These were the beggars. These were the vagabonds. These were the lepers, the sick. These were the prostitutes. These were the ones who were excluded. These were the ones who were absolutely of no account. These were people who had no hope. And Jesus went to them. That's so central to understanding him and understanding his message. He went to those poorest of the poor. And what he did was to begin to speak to them about the great goodness of God. He spoke to them in a way that ignited hope in their hearts. He talked to them that God cared about them that God knew, knew the numbers of their hairs on their heads and that God knew what they needed and that the reign of God was coming and that they should have hope and that they should trust in his word. What he did, I would say more than anything, was that he gave these poorest of the poor dignity, dignity, because they had none in their religion because in the Jewish religion, Not only the assumption, but the strong belief was there that if you were poor, God was displeased with you. Likewise, if you were rich, God had blessed you. Jesus disenfranchised from that notion. Do you remember when he also said, you know, because people assume that uh, someone who is sick or the blind man, well, who sinned, him or his parents? Jesus disavowed that, that that had nothing to do with being loved by God. In the reign of God, Jesus pronounced, no one was excluded. 
But these folks were lacking in dignity. You know, as I was preparing for this evening and praying about that, trying to get a sense of how Jesus gave them dignity, uh, I was reminded of an experience I'd had in my life. And I wonder if you've had an experience like this. Did you ever have an experience in which you felt bereft of dignity, that you had no dignity? I don't mean some wardrobe malfunction. (laughs) I remember when I was first ordained a priest, I was teaching English at a Catholic high school. And one of my buddies on the faculty, a layman, came to the door right in the middle of a senior English class. I went to the door and I said, yeah. And he said, your fly's open. (laughs) It wasn't. But it was a moment of a loss of dignity. I don't mean that kind of stuff. I mean a real sense of a loss of dignity. Let me give you a little example. When I was a graduate student in psychology, I was uh, in, in an internship, and I was uh, putting together a foster placement program for Lane County, Oregon. They didn't have one. It was unbelievable. Uh, and I had a great supervisor. She supervised uh, three other of my colleagues. She was an amazing woman in many ways. And she said to the four of us, she said, I want you guys to do something this week, and you pick the days, because I don't want you going on the same day or going together. She said, I want you guys to go down to the county office and apply for food stamps. Go through the process. I thought, sure, I can do that. I should know that. I should know what that's about and, you know, what's required. So I went into the office, you know, and I'm looking around. Boy, all these poor folks who, had, who, c- who couldn't even look at each other. You know, they just, they looked at the floor. You know, they just, they, they just, they just were kind of like beyond desperate. I went up to the clerk and uh, I said, I want to apply for food stamps. She never looked at me. She never raised her eyes once to look at me. She never dealt with me in any way except shoved at me a clipboard with a questionnaire on it. It was, I wanted to, everything in me wanted to say, you know, I don't really need this. I'm just here to, you know, I just, I'm really okay, you know, and this and that. She says, fill this out. Didn't, you know, like, do you have a pen or do you need, can you read and write, you know? Like, there were certainly people in that room who would never have been able to negotiate the English. Just shoved a, a, a clipboard at me, you know, went over on this this filthy carpet and this filthy chairs. And I, I sat there reluctantly, and I'm filling out this questionnaire. And then I took it to the second window and handed it to a guy who never looked at me, who never called me by name. He just glanced over the sheet, and looking at the sheet, not looking at me, he said, do you rent? I said, I do. And he said, how much you pay? I told him. And he said, it says here you're a student. Is that full time? I said, uh, yes, it is. And he said, you're not eligible. Threw it, threw it off to the side. Next, never looked up. I remember walking out of that feeling like depersonalized, dehumanized, like I didn't even exist, and it wasn't for real. It wasn't for real. And, and that's, that's just a little approximation of a, of a, of a, lo- a loss of dignity. These folks abided in a loss of dignity. They had no value. They had no dignity, and Jesus gave it to them. Jesus gave them that sense of power and belief that God cared about them, that God 
that God really spoke to them. A, short, a story I've shared uh, before, and I don't expect you to remember it, but it really speaks to me of this same gift. Uh, a dear friend of mine, an Irish nun, uh, for years built up an incredible service to the poor of Wheeling, West Virginia, which is a very, very poor place, by the way. Unemployment always is running at double figures. Fed over 500 people three meals a day and sent as many up into the hollers of West Virginia to, to serve the poor, bags of food. And she said this one rainy Sunday night in Advent that during the evening meal, she looked up and she saw an African-American lady with a little girl with her, four or five-year-old little girl with her. The reason I mentioned the African-American piece is this is Wheeling, West Virginia. It's on the cusp of the South. And this is a Catholic enterprise. And it wasn't always clear whether folks would be welcome. And Sister Connie went out uh, to the to the vestibule there and said, good evening, can I help you? And the woman said to Connie very tentatively, I understand we could get something to eat here. She said, yes, you can. She says, we're just serving the evening meal. Why don't you come in and have your meal? And while you're having your meal, I'll put some groceries together for you. And the little girl looked up at Sister Connie, and she, who had been a principal forever before this work, and she said to Connie, did God tell you we was hungry? And Connie knows kids, you know, so she asked this little girl, she says, honey, why would you ask me if God told me you was hungry? And she said, because last night under the bridge, my mama told me, don't worry, God knows we're hungry, and God will take care of us. So did God tell you? And Connie said, God did tell me you were hungry, and you're welcome here anytime you want. And I had that sense, you know, when Connie was telling me that. And you know, when she told me that, it was a... <laughs> she, she was telling, she called me, and she was, uh, she was saying, Ray, I'm in big trouble here. I said, oh, geez, what'd you do now? You, know, you need a lawyer, you don't need me. <laughs> and she said, the Jesuit University here, it's Wheeling University, and, uh, she said, they want to give me an honorary doctorate. I said, so what? What's the, that's great. And she said, no, it's not great. I asked them what I'd have to do, and they said, you have to give a talk at the graduation. Connie would do anything except give a public speech. And she said, I'm not going to do it. I'm turning that down. I said, Connie, you can't do that. They're honoring the poor. They're honoring your cent. They're honoring your volunteers. You've got to do that. She said, I can't do that. I can't do I said, I'll write you the talk. She said, will you really? I said, yes, I will. I wrote a five-page talk and emailed it to her. <laughs> but that was when she told me that story about that Advent evening. And I love it, and I love it to this day. That, that it really captures what Jesus did. And he did it daily. And he did it for the crowds, and he did it for the one-on-ones. He gave them dignity. He gave them the power to believe that they were of value. And what was so extraordinary about this reign of God that Jesus was proclaiming, it had no center of authority. It wasn't Rome. It wasn't Jerusalem. It was all around you. It was the experience of God all around you. Again, more about that tomorrow night. So what do we say of Jesus? What do we say of him? Let's say a number of things. I'm choosing six, maybe. First one is that he was filled with compassion. And he saw that compassion as coming from his God who cared for all. No one not welcome to the reign of God for Jesus. 
his healings, his exorcisms that he performed, were all born of compassion. They were born of the living care that God had for God's people. It was Jesus' conviction that God opposed anything that dehumanized people. Powerful. It's one of the reasons why the gospel has always done well among the poor and struggles among the wealthy. Thirdly, it's still in terms of compassion, what Jesus was engaged in was a proclamation of salvation by what he did. And you remember the early proclamations of John the baptizer, look the Lamb of God, one who takes away the sin of the world, you know, you know that, which is an accommodated sense of the scripture. When John was arrested and was in Herod's prison, Herod Antipas's prison, he began to hear about what Jesus was doing after he left the desert. He began to hear things that really deeply disturbed him, that Jesus was accused of being a glutton and a drinker. It's in the gospel. Jesus was accused of hanging around with prostitutes and tax collectors, that Jesus was ritually impure, that he was on a regular basis touching the sick, laying hands on the sick, never laid hands on the lepers. He healed them, touched them. And John began to doubt, is this really the Messiah? Could he be the Messiah? Because he's not acting like a Messiah. And Jesus answered to the disciples of John, whom he sent to Jesus, to say, are you the one to come, or should we wait for another? What Jesus told them is a gorgeous proclamation of his belief in compassion. He said to them, go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind see, the deaf hear, the poor have the good news preached to them. The lame walk. He's quoting Isaiah, Isaiah's description of what the Messiah does. And you know how sensitive and compassionate Jesus was? He didn't quote the whole of the pericope of Scripture from Isaiah, because the last line was, and prisoners are set free, because John would not be set free from that prison. Compassion. Go and tell John what you see and hear. What Jesus was doing was bringing about shalom. Shalom, God's powerful will for God's people. He was giving people that experience of shalom. Shalom means far more than peace. It means well-being. It means balance. Perfect synergistic interplay. Absolute, everything is as it ought to be. And it's experienced in four ways, very quickly. At the level of the self, who you are deep inside your person, that you recognize right there you're the beloved of God. You're not compared to anybody else. You're not better or worse. You're the beloved of God. Shalom at the level of the self. Jesus gave that gift to the crowds that heard him. Shalom in relationship to the neighbor, that you're to be in a relationship of shalom with those with whom you share your life. Love your enemies. Forgive those who persecute you. Nobody ever taught that in the whole history of rabbinic Judaism. Shalom at the level of the neighbor, the good Samaritan, which was a shocking story. Shalom at the level of the neighbor. Thirdly, the environment. Jesus was all about hospitality. 
He was all up. You could be at meals and find it impossible to be sad in his presence. That he opened up the word of God around the bread that he broke and the wine that he blessed. He also fed the crowds. He also went into the homes of those who were skeptical of him, Simon the Pharisee. He called down Zacchaeus, a tax collector. I'm going to have dinner at your house tonight. This Jesus created an environment of shalom where all were welcome, no one turned away. And finally, in relationship to God, he taught the poor that that is their God. He taught them to call that God Abba, Papa, a relationship of great intimacy. Jesus was extraordinarily manifesting the compassion of the God he believed in. Jesus was a friend of life, a friend of life, raising the dead, healing the sick. He was not a merchant of anxiety or of guilt or of uh, uh, turning people away. Jesus was a friend of life. You know, that, that extraordinarily beautiful text out of Matthew's gospel, I think it's in Matthew 11, which Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavily burdened, and I will refresh you. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The yoke was the word for the law. The Jews used to refer to the yoke of God as Torah. And Jesus is telling them, like, like the, the big, lumbering, experienced ox who plows the field, the young ox is yoked next to the big ox. The same yoke is over both of them, but it's on the shoulders of the big ox. He was teaching the, the young ox how to f- plow a straight line, where to turn, how fast the farmer wants you to go. The younger animal learning from the older animal. Take my yoke upon you, meaning Jesus is carrying the burden. And his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Jesus has not come to put burdens on people, but to lift them and told his disciples to do that as well. He's a friend of life. Jesus is steeped in holiness, really holy, participating in the holiness of God, not some contrived holiness. We can also know and say without question, Jesus was a reflective thinker. Jesus was a thinker. One of, the, one of the questions I would love to ask Jesus, what did you pray about those long nights of prayer? What did you pray about? I had a spiritual director who told me one time, pray about this. Imagine Jesus answers that question for you and says, I prayed for you, little one. What would Jesus pray for, for you? You know, that, that, the, way he, the way he made sense out of what it means to be in relationship with God could only be the product of profound theological reflection. He was also, for his disciples, deeply concerned about wealth and power because he had seen the corruptive uh, product of wealth and power. Not that they're evil in themselves. They can be used for great good. He invited tax collectors, after all, to follow after him, and they were wealthy people. But he was so worried about wealth and power for his disciples because they can corrupt the heart. And in fact, if you look at all the sociological ills 
we've experienced in our world, tell me one that isn't an aberration of a violation of wealth and power. I challenge you, outside of metaphysical evil, you can't do it. It's all, all those evils in the world come back to that. And, and Jesus knew that. He understood that. In all four Gospels, he warns his disciples about wealth and power. And he lived in grace. He lived in grace. And you know what, what, what I'm growing into understanding? I don't purport to understand it. I want to become a disciple of Jesus. Is that Jesus was really teaching his disciples How do I identify that in their own life? How do I identify the grace in their own life? Otherwise, what else did the Spirit of God do to the early apostles? These folks who ran away in the Gospels are proclaiming to the known world the Gospel of Jesus, and most of them were martyred for it. Where did they get that courage? How did they identify that? Take a look in your own life at your leisure, Take a look at your life. What if you looked at your life as a story of grace? Because that's what it is. You're the beloved of God. You're created in God's own image and likeness. What if you looked at your life as a story of grace and traced the thread of grace through your life, even with whatever presence of sinfulness or selfishness or ignorance is there, because it's there in all of us. Sorry for that. But to trace, trace the grace of God that brings you tonight to hear about Jesus, the Son of God. It's gorgeous, you know, the the holding of your child, of your grandchild. Who could not say that's not a moment of grace? Who Who would not say that's not an experience of God's abiding presence? You know, the love of a spouse in your life, you know, someone who has promised his or her tomorrows publicly for you. Wow, it's an experience of God's love. All love is of God. All authentic love is of God the moments of grace that come there for you, the moments of grace to be there and to look for integrity in, in our life. Jesus did that. He lived with profound integrity and he lived from grace. And it's so gorgeous. And we have one another as the answers to each other's prayers. We can identify those realities in each other as well. In November, I had the great privilege of sitting vigil with a 95-year-old veteran of Second World War. I'd known him for 37 years. I sat vigil at his bedside as he died. After having anointed him, he said to me, because he was coming in and out of his consciousness, he said to me after I anointed him, he said, Father, he said, I just want to slip into God's arms. I'm so tired. I just want to slip into God's arms. And I was there with him when he died and had the privilege of his funeral. And in praying about this man and his life before we came together with his family, I thought, my goodness, you know, 95 years of faithful service to his God, 95 years at Mass every Sunday, a prisoner of war for a whole year in the Second World War, having been shot down over Germany. You know, like that never wavering, that fidelity to his God, to what he had received, to the Jesus whom he worshipped. You know, I, I, just, I just looked at him as someone who embodied at that moment, just an ordinary fellow like you and me, but he embodied in his life 
that whole story of grace from the beginning in an orphanage where the nuns taught him about Jesus to the end in a hospital where he went to God, anointed freshly uh, with the anointing of the sick to slip into the arms of God. What a gorgeous way to live. Well, I want to thank you for listening to me tonight, and I'm wondering whether you might have a, a question or a comment or an observation. Um, we have a little time, huh? Anybody? Yes, please, good and loud if you would. Excellent question. The question is... Thank you. Thank you. The question is, when did Jesus realize his role? When did Jesus understand that? Was it from birth? Was it, you know, when he was in the temple? We we don't have a definitive answer to that. But what we can say is, when we look at the life of Jesus that we do know, and that which we can also infer from anthropological studies and archaeological studies as well, and the Gospels, which are our primary source of knowledge about Jesus, is that he certainly grew into, he grew into an awareness of what God was asking of him. And he grew into that. We know that um, it's called the Markan secret in Mark's Gospel, and, it, and it's, uh, it always generates questions in the RCIA, because Jesus will heal somebody. You know, Jesus will cure somebody or expel a demon from somebody and say, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. And inevitably they do, right? Wouldn't you? <laughs> uh, and the sense of that mark and secret is this, is that Jesus, a man filled with God's presence, does not become the Christ until the Jerusalem events. And that is the passion, the death, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. That it, it's in that event, and it's one event, that Jesus becomes the Christ. Uh, his, his understanding of what God was asking of him grew gradually in his life. So we don't have a definitive answer to it. That's the best I can give you. Yes, please. Great, thank you. The uh, question is, what's my understanding of the relationship between Jesus and John the Baptist? The best sense... Uh, that I have of that is that Jesus was a disciple of John in a large contingent of disciples in the desert where he uh, was taken with John's call for repentance and celebration of God's mercy. They also, according to Luke's gospel, were distant cousins. But uh, other than that, the rest of it is good news. It's not a historical rendering of it. The early Christian disciples needed to do something with the fact that Jesus was a disciple of John and therefore create that dialogue. You know, Jesus is standing in the river and John says, I, you should be baptizing me, I shouldn't baptize. You know, that, that's, that's to lift the hearts of the believers. My sense is, was disciple, uh, rabbi. John the rabbi, Jesus the disciple. At the same time, uh, what I would say to you is this. Uh, it's really important to understand that the Gospels are good news. They are not historical uh, documents the way we think of historical documents, you know, with uh, verified sources and uh, so forth, that they're there to teach the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Um, a lot of stuff happened between 30-ish uh, 
A.D. and the time the Gospels were written. The Gospel, uh, the earliest writings are Paul's. Paul's writings are the earliest writings of what we know about what happened, and that would have been in the 50s. The Gospels weren't written until the 70s, and John wasn't written until 90, after 90 A.D. Uh, so John's is really a theology. It's, it's, a, it's a reworked theology of Jesus. But resurrection, insurrection had taken place against the Romans, an absolute devastating defeat of the Jews, the slaughtering of the Jews. The temple in Jerusalem was crushed by the Romans in the year 70 AD. That was the end of the priesthood, the Jewish priesthood, to this day died in 70 AD because of that destruction of the, of the temple. Well, all of those events need to get folded in to the story of Jesus, even though Jesus wasn't part of it. You know, they talk about the signs, of, you know, like when people are going to say the end is coming, the end is coming, don't believe that, you know. Well, it sure looked like the end is coming as Rome devastated Jerusalem. So the best sources we have are anthropological sources, archaeological sources, extra-biblical sources, historians, uh, and the Gospels themselves to try to nudge our understanding of what was Jesus' experience. So it's, you know, uh, and a lot of it, you know, we have, to, we have to, these are documents of faith. They're meant to encourage and, and nudge our own faith in Jesus Christ. So, you know, we don't, we, don't, we don't hear them like with the magnifying glass on them. You know, did that really happen? Did that really take place? You know, it's, what's the lesson that's being taught here for us? And then Jesus' point was always, God believes in you. That was, that was really his point, God believes in you. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, honored by your presence. Thank you. Thank you.